Well, it's week two of a series of messages that we have called Chasing Huckleberries. And if you have a Bible, uh, you can join us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. If you have an app, you can uh, make your way to Mark, chapter 11. We do want to greet every single location, uh, from the Montana locations, Polson and Helena, Kalispell, Whitefish, Missoula, Billings, Bozeman, to Salt Lake City, Utah. Glad to have you with us. And of course, the newest location, Portland, Oregon. Glad to have you joining in. And of course, Church Online, people all over the country, all over the world. Come on, let's say hello to those on Church Online. Joining us on Fresh Life TV, glad to have you with us as well. We're in a series called Chasing Huckleberries, a series that I came up with on a horse, as one does. Um, riding a horse, uh, the guide on the trail said, there, there was huckleberries. We just passed by huckleberries. And I, I looked. I said, where are they? He goes, no, they're, they're 100 yards back. You missed it. And I'm OK, tell me next time we see some. So we're riding through the, the wilderness. And, and uh, he says, there's, there's huckleberries again. And I'm like, where are they? He's like, no, no, they're 100 yards back. You missed it. Like, I'm like, could you just stop this procession next time you see huckleberries? I would love to see one. I've never, never seen one uh, occurring naturally. I've only ever had them in a, in a shake and uh, leaving a national park. But I've never, never seen a huckleberry in the wild. And, and so, so next time he saw huckleberries, he stopped, he stopped us. We all got off our horses. And, and there, there they were. But even after I got off the horse, I was like, I still can't see them. They had to like, grab my hand and put, the, put it on the huckleberry. I'm like, until I feel the hole in the huckleberry's side, I will not believe there is such a thing as a, a huckleberry. And, and then I was eating huckleberries, and, and I was like, we should, we should pick some of these huckleberries. And, but we didn't have anything to put them in. We were on a horse. And uh, so we had like a water bottle in our, our saddlebags. And so he said, well, take a big drink of your water and toss it out and put as many huckleberries as you can put in your water bottle. And, and I was like, what if I get thirsty after that? Well, you have to choose. You, can only, you, can have, you have to have water or huckleberries. You have to make a decision, you know? And so we, we got some. And, and uh, it was during that picking of the huckleberries that, that, I, um, that I asked a question. I said, I said hey, how come, I'm, how come I could not see them as we went by? Like every time I, I, was seeing the, I was seeing the bushes, I couldn't see a single berry. He goes, oh, I'm not looking for berries. I know what the leaves look like. Wow. I know what the leaves look like. I'm looking for the leaves. And when I see the leaves, I know there's going to be berries hidden because the berries grow under the leaves. And, and he goes, when you train your eye to see the bush, then you can find the berry. And uh, so, so I, I got that stuck in my head. And I took my family out later. I said, we're going to go huckleberry picking now. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go out into the wild. And, and uh, I'm going to leave my family into the wild like a man. And uh, we're going to pick huckleberries. And I just need to look for the leaf. If I see the leaf, I can find the fruit. If I, if I find the bush, I can get the berry, right? And, and the problem with that is all leaves look the exact same to me. <laughs> Every leaf I've ever seen in my 35 years on this earth all looked the same as a huckleberry leaf. And, and so that was the problem. But we were successful. We found a lot of leaves. We found, we found so many bushes. We found all the bushes. I found the bush. And the guy said, if you find the bush, you'll get the berry. You find the leaf, you'll get the fruit. And I found, I found um, at the end of our time picking huckleberries, uh, there was nothing in our containers, nothing at all. And Clover corrected me when I said that. She goes, no, Dad, I have lots of leaves in my, I got. Here's the title of this message. Ready? Nothing but leaves. That's the title of this message. Nothing, say it with me, nothing but leaves. Uh, in Mark 11, where I've had you turn in, in scripture, uh, believe it or not, uh, Jesus has a similar experience. Um, it's, it's, it's probably the closest thing to actual huckleberry picking in the Bible. Sorry to disappoint you, but the word huckleberry does not actually show up in the scriptures. But this is for sure the closest thing we can find to, to huckleberry picking. In Mark 11, jumping into verse 12, uh, it says, now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. 
and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found, say the next three words out loud with me, nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, no one ever eat fruit from you again, ever again, proving that even the Son of God got hangry sometimes, right? <laughs> and his disciples heard it. Yeah, I bet they did. Hey, remember that time Jesus yelled at a tree? That was weird. <laughs> now, just pause right there for a second. Jesus has been hanging out in Bethany, as was his custom when he wanted to spend time in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was crazy, especially during the Passover season, when up to like a million people or so would, would surge into the city, and just the population would balloon. And so there was people camped out everywhere, people sleeping everywhere. Every you know, hide-a-bed had somebody on it. And, and uh, so, so oftentimes, if you knew someone in the suburbs, you could stay there. And Jesus had some friends who lived in Bethany, which was a neighbor community. All you do is cross the Kidron Valley, climb up the Mount of Olives, and on the other side, you could get to, to Bethany. And, and so he would do that. His friends were Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus, who most recently, about a week ago, had been dead. And then he wasn't dead anymore because Jesus to totally like, disrupted him being dead and <laughs> raised him back to life. I don't have time to talk about it. But it was pretty significant, and especially for Lazarus. But um, uh, so he's, he's staying there, and he would do trips by day into Jerusalem and come out and and uh, on Sunday, just, just uh, most recently before this happened, um, Jesus had uh, from Bethpage, a, a place which means the, the, the city of figs, from the city of figs, he had told his disciples, go fetch me a donkey. And, uh, and, then, and then he had got, gone to the top of the Mount of Olives with this donkey, and he had allowed himself to be treated like a king. You know of it as the triumphal entry or as Palm Sunday, uh, where Jesus allowed himself to be regaled as a king, and people flocked the roads and, and spread their jackets out, and they got palm branches, and they spread them before him and waved them in front of him and yelled out, Hosanna. But there was an irony to it all, because on one hand, he's being treated like a king and lauded like a king, but then on the other hand, he's riding on a donkey. Wah, wah, right? Kings would do this all, but they would, in the pageant, be on a stallion. They would be on an impressive creature. Jesus, right? It was like, like that, that's something about it, but that's just how Jesus rolled. You know, majesty and meekness, power but in weakness. It's, it's like that all throughout the, the story. Like, he's a king, but not the king you expected, but definitely the king we needed. It's proven in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, when John gets this peek into heaven and he hears a voice behind him that says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has prevailed, who is worthy to open up the scroll and to unloose its seals and to take over possession of the earth. And John turns to who doesn't want to see a lion, right? And he turns to see a lion, but he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. It's majesty and meekness. It's power, but in weakness. So here comes your king, but riding lowly on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. So that had just happened. And uh, then after that all happened, the Bible says he went into the temple, looked around, and then he went back to Bethany. And what we just read was now on the return visit from Bethany back into Jerusalem once again. Okay, so he yells at the tree, and then they go to the temple, and then they, they, they come back uh, and, and check this out, check this out, check this out. Verse 21. Now in the next morning, or 20 rather, now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. 
Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will receive them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And Father, we believe that you will even bless the reading of your word. And as we try to consider and wrestle with and, and try to make sense of some of these things and apply them most significantly to our lives, we pray that you would breathe on us as we do that. For just information isn't going to help us. We need transformation. We need desperately to live differently out of what you're going to speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Monday. In the chronology of the story, it's Monday. And by Friday, Jesus will be dead. So we've reached the last day of his life. And with the final time that remains of this most significant period of his three and a half year ministry that had been broadcasted as God's agenda all, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout history, God promised to bring his son. Then Jesus shows up. And for 30 years, there's, there's, nothing, there's no movement. But then at 30, he begins to serve, the same time when priests would begin to serve in the Old Testament, by the way. He begins to serve. He begins to, to go through this ministry. And all throughout the three years, he resisted being treated like a king until this day of the triumphal entry which now would, would begin his march towards the cross during this final week. He referred to it as his hour, as his time. He referred to it as the cup that, that God the Father had sent him to drink, containing the wrath of God poured out against all unrighteousness that all of us have stored up for us, but that Jesus drank so that none of us would ever need to taste a single drop. And the triumphal entry marked the beginning of Passion Week. He rides in on this donkey. He rides in being celebrated. What does he do when he gets into the city? Well, he goes straight into the temple area that he had scouted out doing recon work the day before. That he had just come in and seen it, then he left. Now as he comes in, what does he do? After he cleanses, uh, after he yells at this fig tree, what does he do? He, he, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Don't, don't trust me. But after yelling at the fig tree, he rushes into the temple that he had scouted out after the triumphal entry, and he immediately began to almost go berserk. We didn't read it. It was in between the passages. But, but he made a whip, and he starts getting Indiana Jones all up in this thing on the last crusade. I mean, it's literally like the best way I can exegete the text is, is to describe Miss Harrison Ford in his prime, right? Snakes. <laughs> I don't like snakes, right? He, he starts cracking a whip and flipping over tables and driving the money changers out and yelling about how his father's house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And isn't it interesting that God would have us here on that thought? during a week when our nation is just almost like being ripped apart at the seams, and the tensions of, of one race thinking it's superior to another, when we've all been created out of dust and made in the image of God. And, and God has a heart for all nations to render him worship, all nations to receive from him, all, a house of prayer for all nations. And, and, and to think about 
one race thinking it's superior to another one race. And that was ironically what was happening. You had other nations being treated badly. There was in the temple area a place called the Court of the Gentiles where God had even within the Old Testament law, which was a shadow of what was to come, even there he had given provision for people from any nation, any tribe, any tongue to approach and learn that they could worship God too and that they could present a sacrifice. But, but it had been distorted. It had become a thing that there were people taking advantage of that desire. And they were ripping people off by charging exorbitant exchange rates to take their currency from Ethiopia or whatever country it was and to exchange it over to the temple currency. And so they would get an upcharge on that. But then they also had this other game going on where people would bring a lamb or bring an animal to be sacrificed. And they would say, oh, you're going to give God that? It's blemished. It's bad. God wouldn't accept that. But we do have a pre-certified stock right here that has been pre-approved and vetted for any diseases. If you want to buy one of these, you can. OK, well, how much do they cost? Well, how much do you love God? And it was just this thing where they were taking advantage of people. And Jesus had seen this in the court of the Gentiles. And he knew that it is such a disservice to the heart of God to ever rise up against another person because of skin color or where you're from or what language you speak or their cultural background and to say that you're somehow inferior. I'm going to tell you something. That comes from hell, not from heaven. In heaven, God will be worthy by every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And there is no room in the heart of someone following Jesus for anything close to racism. And so Jesus reacted strongly against that, driving out the money changers and, and, and fighting against this evil and this ugly thing that, that had showed up that was perverting um, God's heart. And, uh, and, and this tree on the way, it might seem like a random like detail given in like are you sure that shouldn't have come out in editing like what the heck like like I, honestly and I, I've even read Bible commentaries who don't know what to make of it. One guy said this is an odd passage and difficult to explain right, <laughs> and, he, and then he said there's a certain peevishness to Jesus which seems totally out of character. <laughs> it's like it's like he went in to go do this hugely important thing, but first let me stop and yell at a random tree. This is this is weird, um, but but you have to understand this tree is about much more than just this tree. But to even properly understand it, you need to know something about fig trees. You see, the fig tree that, that grew in Israel at that time was a tree that did not produce leaves until it already had fruit. It would not produce leaves until there was already fruit. Early spring, and this is right around April, you would see fruit show up, small fruit. And, and even when it was just buds, travelers could eat it. It was like the beef jerky of its day. Like it was the perfect food for walking on foot because there were fig trees all over Israel. Uh, it, was, it was synonymous with Israel and actually a symbol for the nation of Israel. Under Moses, when the spies went in to check out this land, you know they reported back, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But then one of the other comments they made is, dang, there were fig trees everywhere. Not that much of a fig eater. I don't know if you're big into it. I, my family and I recently were, were speaking at a church, and they, they brought us in to, to give a message out of my book, The Eyes of a Lion. And, um, and they were so sweet. They had like, asked someone, like, what drinks do we like? And they had those in there. And they, might, they asked what your girls like. There were little Legos that my girls like. And that was really kind. And then and there was just this enormous bag of figs. It was just sitting there. And it was, I, mean, it was, I cannot overstate the, the, how large this bag of figs was. Um, <laughs> It, like Costco would have been like, that's too big for us. We, nobody, nobody could get through that. Like they, they, it would be turned down immediately on site. Like there's, just, there's too many figs. Um, we were there for like two or three days. And it was, it, was, it was probably like 200 figs in this bag. And I was like, I've never eaten a fig. I feel terrible leaving it. I, I, like maybe they, they went to all this trouble to get me this big bag of figs. And I better at least try one. And I, man, I tried exactly one tiny bite of a fig. And now it cured me of the desire to ever have a fig again. But obviously, Jesus was big into them. And they were all over Israel. And travelers would eat these little buds that would show up. But, but then 
once the buds needed shade, the trees would naturally grow leaves to shade their fruit so that they could be right by the middle of summer or late in the summer, OK? So, so understand, understand that about fig trees. If they had leaves, it was because they already had fruit, OK? And, and, and so why, why is Jesus so mad uh, at this tree? Why is he so angry at it? I mean, give the guy a little break. Give the tree a little grace. May no one eat from you ever again, and then the tree's dead the next time they pass by. That's, that just doesn't seem like Jesus. Wouldn't he like, hey, little guy, you can do it. Like, get some, you know, that's, that's Jesus. He's supposed to be super encouraging. Like, like do, we, do we think that, that the, mo- the first, second time we blow it? Like, I thought that's not how God rolls. I thought he's long-suffering. I thought he has. Understand, this is the continuation of a conversation about the fig tree that has been ongoing. Matter of fact, this tree is now a living component in a parable that Jesus had told. You're like, what's a parable? It's two bulls, a pair <laughs> of bulls. Come on, it's so much funnier than you responded. <laughs> Whatever. It killed them in Oregon, I'm sure. Listen, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus would tell these earthly stories with elements that people could get that had details that were close to their everyday lives, but it had a heavenly meaning. And so it let light in on the truth. It, would, it was Jesus' way of hiding heaven in earth, hiding heaven in earth. And in Luke 13, he had told a story about a fig tree. Check this out. He said, this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So he said to the keeper of his vineyard, the one who looked after these trees. Look, for three years, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none every single time. So cut it down. Why does it use up the good ground? We could pause right there, and I probably should preach about how we should all be examining areas of our lives that are not producing, but we're allowing them to drain space that could be used for other things. But I don't got time to preach on that. He says, cut this tree down. It's not producing. So I'm going to get it out of here to get something good into the soil that can do something profitable. I want a return on investment. Okay, But the guy he paid to keep his vineyards made a solid case as to why this tree should get more time. Okay, What did he say? He said, let it alone, sir. I mean, respectfully, it's your vineyard. You do what you want. If you say to cut it down, we'll do it. But here's my opinion as the person who takes care of your plants. Let it alone this year also. I know you waited three years, but give me one more shot. Give me, give me, and I, I like this because now he tells what his plan is that makes this worthwhile. I have a plan. I'm going to dig around it. That would allow more water to get to the roots. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to pour some stuff on it, right? <laughs> and listen, listen, listen. Man, I'm giving free business advice here. Managers, employees who aren't producing, I'll, I'll, I'll here's some stuff you could say. I'll wait, but I want to see you work. I'll, I'll watch, but I want to see you work. If it's not been producing, I'll, I'll let you get there, but I'll wait if you'll do the work, you see? So he's giving a plan. This is the steps I'm going to take. And after that, if it bears fruit, well, well, that's just a sentence. Well, you'll have fruit. You don't need to be angry at the tree anymore. <laughs> but if not, after that, you can cut it down. So we'll give some space. Let's see you turn this thing around. But tell me the concrete steps you're going to take. That's what this, this, this vineyard gets. Uh, this man says, I got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. 
So this now, Jesus gets to in, in Mark 11, and it's also told in Matthew 21, is a continuation of this parable. So the conversation about the unproducing fig tree is now reaching its point of his terminal patience with it. I'm going to wait, but I'm not going to wait forever. I'm going to wait, but I want to see some steps towards work that are being taken. So there's already been three years of grace given to this fig tree. But wait, friends, there's more. According to Leviticus 19, a fig tree that was planted was not expected to produce anything for its first three years. And the fourth year, all fruit was given to God. Okay, So we're actually talking about year five, year six, and year seven, when this man says, I've come to this tree for three years. He wouldn't have expected fruit for three years. Now, there's also some free business advice. You, you cannot, when you launch something, assume that you're going to see a return from day one. You, as you come up with your business plan, this is why we often see these businesses spring up, but then go away just as quickly. Because there was the mistake in thinking that if I build it, they will come. Now, understanding, it might take a year, it might take two years, it might even take longer to get to solvency. You're siphoning gas for a little bit. So you have, you, you have to underestimate as you forecast what's going to come in when you're putting your business plan together. Lest you think, if I get to get, get the doors open, if all I have is to get the doors open, you may very well come and go like a ship in the night. This man planted the tree knowing you're one, you're two, you're three. I cannot depend on it to bring anything into my life because nothing's coming from it for those years. If anything does come, hey, bonus, right? But then I love the year four belonging to God because that made a statement. The statement says that, that, that whatever God gives to me, I'm going to honor him first. And that's how I live my life. That's how I think you should live your life, right? Well, yeah, because the money, the church needs my money. Actually, because you need God's blessing. Let me tell you, you need God's blessing a whole lot more than God needs any of your money. That's, that's how I feel. And I... When I get anything, my first response with it is to give to God, not to my mortgage. Because something's going to get honored first. And whoever you pay first, you honor the highest. The mortgage will get the first. Visa will get the first. American Express will get the first. Verizon will get the first. Or, or, or uh, Nordstrom's going to get the first. But when my marriage is in crisis, Nordstrom can't help my marriage. Uh, when when, when my, my, uh, my, 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 one of my kids is sick, AT&T, I'm not going to reach out to. But since God can take care of those things, my statement of God, I put you first, believing that you will bless the rest. That's, that's, I love that so much. Three years, nothing. Fourth year, that belongs to the Lord. So you're five, six, and seven. So when Jesus comes up and yells at this tree, there's seven years history that he's addressing that we would miss if it's just that first blush. We're like, why is he yelling at that tree? God is gracious. God is long-suffering. But though the wheels of justice in God's mills grind slowly, they, they, they grind very fine. And there does come a point when we've had the opportunities, and we cannot presume on his grace. That's why the Bible says, if today you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart, because we never know when we are reaching that point of we're locked into a decision. There does come a danger of, of thinking that we can, we can presume on God's grace, and that he'll, he'll convict us again, and we'll get space to get right with God again. That's why young people listen to me. It's such a mistake to think, I'll get right with God when I'm older. Because tomorrow and next year and next year, sometimes tomorrow never comes. And so Jesus has reached this point, and he's spoken to this tree, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Why? Because he's not interested in getting nothing but leaves. But remember that the tree then is a picture of the nation of Israel, who only yesterday gathered alongside the road of the Mount of Olives and were spreading their clothes out before him. And what were they waving? Palm branches in the air. But please remember, this same fickle mob on Friday 
will be the crew of people crowded in front of Pilate's headquarters, the Praetorium, and, and goaded on by the religious leaders. It will be the same group of people yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, away with him, for he is not fit to live on the earth. And when Pilate says, shall I crucify your king, they will be the same ones yelling out, we have no king but Caesar. And when Pilate says, what has he done? And then washes his hands, saying, if I let him be put to death, I want it to be clear that this is not on me. This is on you. And they cried out, we will be proud to have his blood on us and on our children, meaning we, will, we would love to go down in history as the people that rid Jesus Christ from the earth. We'll brag about it to our grandkids. And so you can't live by the people. If you live by the public opinion, you'll die by public opinion. You need to live looking to God, not looking to man. I'm telling you something. The fear of man brings a snare. And so, so Jesus heard them shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But he knew that for most of them, at the end of the day, this, this adulation and worship would amount to nothing but leaves. Where are we going? Here's the whole sermon, the whole message in just a sentence. Living well matters more than looking good. Living well matters more than looking good. Putting on a show of religion, putting on a show of worship, putting on a big talk of how much you love God, putting it, plastering it on your shirt or on your, your car, making a big noise. All show and no go is not what we're after. William Barclay put it this way, profession or promise without performance is useless. We don't want to talk a big God talk, but then live an ugly life. It's fruit we're after. And how do you get that fruit? It's not just by saying a lot about you love Jesus, because it's a lot easier to claim Jesus as your king than to follow Jesus as your king. But how we get the fruit and not just the leaves is we put our lives under his control. Isn't that what Galatians 5 says? Look at, it, look at it one more time with me. You've seen it before. When the Holy Spirit controls our lives, that's the key. We tend to rush right on to, oh, we want fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But look back at the beginning. How are you going to get there? When the Holy Spirit controls our lives. Why do we not like that? Because we want to control our lives. We want to claim Jesus as our king, giving him lip service, but then to keep our lives totally under our control. But a king is someone who you bow your knee before, and you do what they say. Because remember, the idea of a king is great. The actual life of a king, that we resist. Because we want God just to shoo the rain away from our golf games, or to bring the rain to get rid of the smoke from the air. But then at the end of the day, most of us just want to do what we want to do. But if we want the fruit that God is after, we can't just talk a big God talk, but then live that ugly life. It can't just be promise and profession without living it out in practice. If we allow day to day, moment by moment, the Holy Spirit to control our lives, then we can have fruit and not, at the end of the day, be nothing but leaves. Amen? Anybody with me on this? this is what you want? <clears throat> Hype on Sunday, but, but then none of it leading into the Monday and spilling out over Tuesday and washing onto our Wednesday. If the Sunday don't change the Monday, the Sunday didn't count. I'm telling you. Otherwise, what, like, what is this? It's a big pep rally, but then we just go back to life as usual. We want life change. And, and that is so important for us to understand. Now, I have, from this text, picked out six different areas where we can focus intentionally on cultivating huckleberries, I guess you could say, instead of just having the show of leaves and having a big, vibrant bush, but, but not have any of that, that powerful fruit underneath. Six different areas from the text. Jot these down 
if you would. Number one, credibility. Credibility. This tree lacked credibility. What it broadcasted to the world was, hey, look at me. I've got figs over here. Hey, get them while they're hot. Got delicious figs, right? So the fig was communicating, I have figs. But its, it's truth, as you lifted up its branches, was a different story. What, what I'm getting at is this. Do you have credibility? Do people believe what you say? Or from experience, have they learned to have to take everything you say with a little bit of a, of a grain of salt? Do you, here we go, do you do what you say you're going to do? Are you, just, as simple as in your social circles. When all your friends are hanging out and everyone's making plans and you're like, yeah, let's do this, do that. Does everybody sort of do a little bit of a secret eye roll? Like, yeah, well, we'll see if he'll be there. I'll be there. Oh, you saved me a seat. I'll be, right? It, or are you the flaky guy in your group? Don't be that way. Don't, don't be the person who, what you say just doesn't often materialize. And then afterwards, like, there's always this crazy excuse. So a skydiver fell from the sky, and my car ran over him, and I did CPR, and he got back up, and that's why I wasn't there for coffee. Everyone's like, wow, you, you live the most exciting life I've ever heard of. Jack Bauer, he would want to listen to your stories because you, my friend, right? That's a dated reference. Everyone's like, what does that even mean? Google it. Whatever. Listen. <laughs> Don't be, don't be a person who what you say does not match up with what you do. In the smallest area, young people, I really encourage you, just when you get into business, don't exaggerate. Don't cut corners. Don't overpromise and then underdeliver. Don't give a, a, a great big, here's what I'll do and here's what it'll look like, but then not deliver on that at the end of the day because you gave unrealistic expectations to get the job that you now can't follow through on. Be a person who the moment you speak it, it's going to be done. It's going to happen. That you own your fails, that you, you're a person who is a man or woman of your word. I know integrity and honesty and faithfulness is stuff in the Bible that we assume God wants for us, but it's also stuff the people of this world are hoping to get from us as well. It's solid ground. I'm telling you, so there's something that's just strong and robust about people being able to trust what you say. We tend to focus on talent. We tend to focus on ability, right? But character, I'm telling you something. These are things in the business world that, that people crave, that, that, that they will want to do work with you again and again and again. Under promise, over deliver. Well, doesn't Proverbs say to not be the kind of person who like billowing clouds that bring no rain? That's the person who talks big but never produces. Under promise so you can over deliver. Don't lack credibility. Don't let your leaves say one thing, but then your life say another. That's the first. There's a second. From the story, I read this down. Speak vitality. Vitality. Vitality is a word that means life. We know that. If you go to the doctor, the first thing they're going to do is check your vital signs. Hopefully they find some. That would be good. Like, did you find anything? Did you find any life? Yes, we found signs of life. Hooray, that's a good start to the day, right? <laughs> Here's my question. Do your words produce vitality? Take this picture. The picture is, and we've already explained what it means, so now we can kind of be creative with it. Jesus walks up to a tree, and he says something to the tree. And then he walks away, and the next time, next time they see it, the tree's dead. Now, Matthew's gospel gives us some insight. It dried up on the spot. As they were walking away, the disciples didn't notice, but it dried up as he spoke to it, according to Matthew. Mark just tells us that next time they saw it, it was completely, listen, withered up from the roots, completely dead. Plant life cannot survive with no moisture. And this dried up. Jesus' words somehow the power to suck the moisture out of this plant. Now, let me ask you this question. Does that happen to you? Or do your words inject vitality into things? 
People in your life, when they have a conversation with you, when they get a text message from you, when they interact with you, does that, does that impact be felt towards vitality or to the lack thereof? I'm asking, do you speak blessing or do you speak curses on people? You're like, come on, Levi, that sounds a little Harry Potter for my liking. You listen, a curse could be something as simple as you, you speak to them, and when they walk away, their shoulders are more slumped over and their heads more down. Pay attention to the posture of your kids when you talk to them. Does it cause them to hang their heads in shame? Or, or does it cause them, even in correction, to lift them up? The reason I'm disciplined is because I believe you have so much in you. God has given you strength. You know better. You can do better. I, I believe that over you. I'm just saying we can, with our tongues, pronounce life or death. Jesus said in, in the book of James, life and death are bound up in the power of the tongue. A little rudder can cause a big ship to turn in a healthy course or an unhealthy one towards disaster. And your tongue can have that same effect. I just encourage you to choose your words very carefully, to choose not to speak over someone that they're lazy, to not speak over someone that, that they'll amount to nothing, to not speak over someone that they're good for nothing. When, when, you let, when someone speaks to you, make it your aim that however brief or however long that exchange is, that in that tiny impartation, that some vitality transfers from you to them. Let it be that when they walk away, even if I'm not saying you're always going to get to talk to them, here's what God's done in my life. It might be just you keeping your phone in your back pocket a little more often. I'm telling you something. When we just walk around, oh, yeah, hey. hey but when you stop and look at someone and, and just notice them for a second, make some observation about what their life is, just even just acknowledging their humanity, looking them in the eyes for a second, saying their name. If they walk away from you feeling heard, feeling valued, don't you just want to be the kind of a person who speaks life and speaks hydration? and speaks vitality to people, that, that they walk away with their shoulders thrown back a little bit. They just feel like, man, that I feel celebrated. I don't even know what it is. I want to be around you more. Because when people feel good about themselves, they feel good about you. They'll want to be around you more. People are going to want to be around you. If, you're not the, if you don't have the effect of sucking the moisture sucking the life, sucking, you know, it could be as simple as having good breath. I mean, these are the practical little things of life, you know what I mean? Just thinking about what is your impact? How do you smell? <laughs> this is a thought, right? If you don't smell well, people don't want to be around that. Like, if you just work on these little things in life that you bring vitality, don't be the last one to leave a party. You're watching the host cleaning up the sink. Dear God, honey, we need to get to bed. And you're just like, hey, anybody else want to play some more Parcheesi? Like, we don't even know what that is. Like, just, dear God, go. I mean, just these little things, not showing up before the time when something started. They're, they're still getting stuff ready. You know that scramble to get the house clean and shove everything into the closet? You're like, ding dong, thought I'd come 20 minutes early just to be annoying, right? Just, just <laughs> be a person who speaks and communicates and lives with vitality. Anybody receive that in Jesus' name? These are the things not being taught anymore. <laughs> not just vitality and credibility, but how about spiritual intensity? Spiritual intensity. Hey, I probably could have just used the word faith, so write faith down next to it in parentheses, but I chose not to. Because I think that's one of those good Bible words like love that has been just driven into the ground by repetition. Well, you just got to have faith. And we use love to describe our wife and ice cream. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, maybe that one, you know, I don't know, whatever. But, <laughs> but, but stay with me. Stay with me. I think faith in the text is more like a spiritual intensity. Well, it's just have faith in God. We use that word in such a passive, emasculated way. But when Jesus chose to describe faith, because what did he say? When they're, dude, you spoke to the tree and it died. And Jesus said, have faith in God. Does that impress you? 
He said, I'll tell you what, if you had some faith, you'd be able to speak to a mountain to go to the sea, and the mountain would be uprooted and moved to the sea. Now, let's be clear what he is talking about and isn't talking about. I don't think Jesus literally meant that any of us should go stand in front of Mount Hood and be like, move to the Pacific Ocean. And next thing you know, driving down the freeway, there's Mount Hood rumbling. There's mountain climbers hanging off the side of it. You know, it's like, I'm going to the ocean. That guy said to, whatever. Like, don't judge my journey, right? I'm going to the ocean. What are you going to do there? I don't know. I'll be in the ocean, though. (laughs) Context, context, context. In that day, 2,000 years ago, a common expression was, of the, the most impossible thing would be a mountain moving. That's as impo- oh, yeah, this is likely as a mountain moving, right? Now, we can't use that today because we can do that. Someone can stand in front of a mountain and give the command, and all the charges that have been rigged all throughout the mountain can be blown down. And the mountain, one truckload at a time, can, if we wanted to, move it to the sea. We do that. We put footers in place to, to raise bridges over giant spans. So we'd need to pick a new one. May I, I, w- I would suggest when pigs fly, but Jesus did that one time too. So, you know, we just got a really, <laughs> we got a really hell freezing, oh, you know, whatever. Like he, he was basically saying, if you would just have faith, whatever you say is impossible can be done according to faith. That's a spiritual intensity. And I would just encourage you to turn the temperature up a little bit on your spiritual intensity. I mean, do you just walk around kind of like, oh, life's so bad, and life's so hard, and oh, oh, well, that figures, and oh, story of my life. Or is there a faith in God? Is there a, come on, I'm just telling you, live a life where you believe God's promises. You believe he's for you. You believe he's got a plan. You believe he's up to something. Don't just look at what is. Look at what what is going to be there. Get up every day believing you are on a mission from God, that you're guided by his plans, that he's going to help you see things, that he's going to help you understand things, that he's going to use you to do great things at work and in your family, in your community. What a difference it makes when you wake up and you get out of bed and you believe the God who made the world is living in me. I'm just saying there should be a spiritual intensity that would cause people to react with surprise, like the disciples did. That thing that no one could ever do, you did it. And you're like, eh. Of course. Have faith in God. Impossible things can be done by faith. I refuse to look at our church and see only what's there. I see what's going to be there. I refuse to look at you and see what's there. I see the God inside of you. I see the powerful things that are waiting to be done when it clicks into place that God loves you. I'm done. I just, I just encourage you, don't, don't come to church like, well, it's another service. Come to church believing everything's going to shift today. Don't just go to another day of work. Go out on assignment into this broken world and show God's redemptive light to somebody. Just, you got 70 years if you don't get hit by a bus. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be tepid. Don't believe the critics. Don't believe the haters. Don't give in to those who have given up on their dreams so they resent you for living yours. Live on mission. Live with purpose. Live on fire. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. That's that's living with a spiritual intensity. Let people see your eyes just full of passion. That, that right there, just, it just, like, I, when, sometimes when I'll be hanging out with friends, we're going to, you can just almost watch people, like, 
like trying to figure out what the crap's going on. Like, like what's up with you guys? So we'll get into an Uber. We'll be speaking in a conference. A bunch of us will get in, speaking. And, and the driver's like, uh, something's different about you. Like, they'll say the funniest thing. There's a different energy about you. Your aura. They say there's the funniest things. And, and, and what do you guys do for work? Oh, we're pastors. And we speak out of the Bible, trying to help people tap into their potential. And, or I'll say, I'll change it up. I'm an author. And, you know, and, 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 and I write books. And, tr- and about what? Trying to help people who have gone through the most worst thing in their life, figure out what God's plans are for them from, from ground zero. Or, or, or relationship books, trying to help people m- make sense of this crazy world with Tinder and HPV and getting people pregnant and booty calls. And it's, uh, and it's just like, <laughs> it, the energy, it's not energy, it's not some aura, it's the Holy Spirit of God that can light your heart, light your eyes on fire. I, I, just, I just dare you to live a bigger story. I mean, th- throw your shoulders back a little bit. Believe that God is for you. I, I just think that's a better way to live. Um, so it's not just vitality and credibility. This text is just full of stuff, isn't it? Uh, also, how about this one? Magnanimity. Magnanimity. Vocab word time class. Are you a magnanimous person? You're like, before I answer that, could you please tell me what that means? Yes, I can. The word is, is defined this way. Very generous. Someone say generous. generous. Or forgiving especially toward a rival or someone less powerful than oneself. That's a good word. That word should not go out of circulation. There's so much of it we could drill down on. But, but I think that when we live a life of, of generosity, uh, our world just gets bigger. Be the person to pick up the check. Don't, don't, don't split hairs over it. Well, you, you, ate, you ate a buffalo wing, so I'm putting that on your side. Like, I, just live a big life. Live a generous life. As you live a life of generosity, your world just gets bigger. The world of the stingy just gets smaller and smaller. And, and I love that he says, he says, especially towards a rival, especially towards someone less powerful than you are. Didn't Malcolm Forbes put it so well when he said the true test of someone's character is how he treats those who can do nothing for him? Don't just posture. Don't just network with those who you can do something for you or advance your career or bring you into a bigger place. Live a life that's full of generosity towards rivals and towards those who can do nothing towards you. I, heard, I read about a company that would have an interesting way of doing interviews. And one aspect of the interview, and, and all companies should creatively do this and switch up the HR process and all this, but, but they would, part of the interview would begin way sooner than getting into the office with the person doing the interview. It would, it would, they would pull the, inter- the secretary in and ask, like, hey, how was he s- was speaking with you? Did he look into your eyes? Did she look into your eyes? Like, the, 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 this is in Patrick Lencioni's book. He talks about, um, he, he said at one point the, the person came up to the assistant and asked if he could plug his phone in and get some juice on it, but was totally, like, clinical and, and, and like, almost, like, uh, indignant a little bit, like, he deserved this to happen because kind of a big shot. But so just, I think, I think it, it doesn't mean much if you can be nice to those who are in a position to do something for you. Your true spirit, your true heart comes out. How do you treat valets? How do you treat the busboy? How do you treat people who are not in a position to do anything for you, but the powerless ones? Didn't Beauty and the Beast show us, though, there could be something great in the heart? And that's actually from the Bible, too. You, you never know. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that even being kind to strangers, some people have entertained angels unaware. Maybe God tucked someone who has nothing to do for you into a place just to test you. Here's how to live your life. Everything's a test. Show love to everybody. Everybody's important. Show love to everybody. Everybody's worthy of magnanimity. Magnanimity. Generosity and forgiveness. Now, you're like, this isn't in the text. I don't see it. Oh, really? Didn't Jesus say 
Now, have faith, move mountains, do all that. Then he immediately said, but make sure when you have someone you need to forgive as you stand praying, you go and get that sorted out with them. Why the sudden right turn towards forgiveness? Well, Jesus knew what we need to know, and that's this. A lack of forgiveness relationally will block your power spiritually. Unforgiveness is bad for you. All right, so magnanimity, super important. How about this? Energy. Energy. The energy and strength to do the things that you need to do in this life should not be underappreciated or underrecognized. Jesus is in his last week on earth, correct? What's the first thing he does going into Monday to build momentum on the last week of his life? He gets breakfast. He says, I need to find a fig tree. Being hungry, I need food. I got a big day ahead of me, cracking whips, flipping over tables, and yelling at trees. I need some breakfast, right? I'm going to need me a good breakfast. And you're like, well, that's just a detail on the way to important stuff. Is it? Let me ask you a question. Are you fueling well? If you look at your life and you're always getting into a heated exchange with a coworker at 2.30, did you eat crap for lunch? And do you expect to feel well? Are you eating just junk food and sugar? Like, if you're not fueling well, you're not going to feel well. We've been given one body. We should take care of it. Jesus often early in the morning would go have prayer even before breakfast. Now we know breakfast was a part of his rhythms, but he would always pray too. Why? He knew he needed to fuel spiritually as well as physically. So are you eating good? I mean, these are the basic things. We have to know, like, God, do a miracle. And God's like, quit eating badly. I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I just wonder if, if, if we're looking to him to do things that are within our control as well. Someone said God doesn't even show up until it's impossible. So you got to do what you can do and then trust God for what only he can do. If, if you're not having what you need to give a word to your spouse or to be kind to your, to your coworkers, are you opening up scripture to deposit something? Or do you immediately rush to Twitter? Or do you immediately go to the stocks, because that's where your real treasure is? Or you look into the currency of heaven, because that's where your heart actually is, because it goes there with your treasure. I'm, I'm just encouraging you to steward your energy. You're not going to have spiritual energy and intensity. You're not going to have physical energy to love people and to live with a shining brightness in your eyes. If you're not fueling well, you can't feel well. This is good preaching. All right, I got one last thing, then we're going to shut this down. Authenticity. I see in this passage that we should live an authentic life, especially when we're flawed, especially when we're failed. To be authentic is where when people look at you, what they see is what they get. What they see is what they get. It's the opposite of playing a part. It's the opposite of wearing a mask. To quote the title of a book that I haven't read, but it challenges me every time I see it, by Esther Fleece, this is where we're, we're not faking fine. Her book's called No More Faking Fine. I haven't read it, but it seems unbelievable. And she just tweeted me after I referenced it and goes, read it already. I was like, oh, she I sent you one. OK, I'm on it, Esther. But no more faking fine. To live an authentic life means when you're not fine, you don't portray like you're fine. Tim Keller, uh, he said that the only time a fig tree would produce leaves with no fruit is when disease and decay was already deep within the tree. Something had gone seriously wrong. But the tree saying, I'm good, not good. Let me ask you a question. Are you the sort of person that, that fakes fine? Or are you authentic, especially before God, but also before God to people? When you're hurting, do you try and put up pretenses? Do you, do you just shove fig leaves over, over your, your heart? That, that literally prompted the only destructive miracle Jesus ever performed. This is the only time he ever did a miracle that destroyed as opposed to helped. So he was obviously sending a message. He's not into covering things up. 
You've heard the expression, the cover-up is often worse than the crime. That's exactly right. Because the crime, you, whatever crimes, sins, flaws, whatever things you've done that are wrong, God can do something with any of that if you bring that before him. It's called repentance. It's called confession. If you go to someone, I'm sorry. Here's what I've done. That's, that's very hard to respond to badly. I own, I own what I've done. Help me make it right, and I don't want to do it again. That, that God can deal with. The cover-up, he can do nothing for. Because you can't be forgiven of a sin you won't admit to having done. This is a story of man. Ages old as time. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve went chasing huckleberries from the wrong tree, if you catch the drift. And um, what did they do immediately? They, the Bible says they covered up. Actually, in Genesis 3, 7, it says, their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves and made themselves coverings. And then covered up in nothing but leaves. They hid behind bushes when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Listen to me. That used to be the highlight of their day. They would hear the sound, God's coming. What did that sound like? I, I want to know. F-16 coming in, you know. God's sound came, and then they would spend time with him. But now they're hiding when they heard the sound. And that tells you something. Concealed sin will cause you to dread what you used to delight in. So now God's there, and they're hiding. What does God do? God could have said, hey, with the two idiots hiding behind the bushes wearing the fig leaves, please come on out and have a talk. But he didn't do that. Why? Because he runs after us. He calls out to us. He seeks after us the whole time. So God said this. Listen, he said, Adam, where are you? Like playing with a child. Like, where are you? I can't see you hiding behind that skinny lamp, uh, Billy. <laughs> Adam, where are you? Giving Adam the space to come clean giving Adam and Eve the space to come out with what they've done and just, just say, hey, we, did, we sinned, Father. We shouldn't have done this. We listened to the snake. He was persuasive. His eyes were hypnotic. And no, no, they, they kept hiding. And then when they finally did come, they were passing the blame, shifting the blame. But as long as you shift the blame, you'll stay the same. It was her father. It was his father. It was the woman. It was the man. It was my circumstances, my family, my neighborhood, the dysfunction. I grew up on Instagram. I love and so, so finally, they get doled out judgment. But you see God's heart. You see the heart of the Father in the fact that the moment they were finally open and honest about what they've done, the text says in Genesis 3, verse 21, that God killed these animals and made tunics of skin and clothed them. He had something so much better for them to wear than just fig leaves. It took the death of an innocent third party, but he covered them with the principle of substitution. This animal died to clothe them. He was introducing the cross even from way back then. And that's why Jesus cursed this tree, because it was wearing fig leaves. And he hates so much when we cover up what he wants to cure us from. And that's why Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus became a curse for us, for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He cursed the tree because it puts religion on us when he came to die on the tree and to be the curse for us, that he might cure us of what's actually wrong with us. He wants to heal you. He wants to touch you. He's been running after you the whole time. So lean into his love, receive his grace.
all bow our heads and close our eyes. All of us just praying and just, just being real with God for a minute. I just want to just speak out that the Bible says that we can confess our sins to God to be forgiven and that we can confess them to each other to be healed. And I just pray and hope that, that you understand that this is not a culture here at Fresh Life where we're trying to put an expectation out that we all have to show up, like hiding what's really going on. But we can be real and we can be broken. We can be vulnerable so we can be healed and helped. And God can't help us to be clean if we don't come clean in that way. But maybe you're here today and all of your walk with God amounts to fig leaves because it's just religion for you. It's just memorizing this, do this, and it's just really you trying to pay your bill at the end of the day. But scripture says that when we stand before God to be judged, the only hope for any of us is not that we did good, but that we trust that he did good. And we've received that grace that only Jesus can give. And we've accepted that new life that he puts in us that can then give us energy to do great things on this earth. So I just want to give an invitation. Just anybody here or online, and you're ready to give your heart to Christ, you sense the Holy Spirit calling you. And like I said, the, the mistake would be to put it off. I'll do this later. I'll get right with God. If you hear his voice now, don't presume on that grace. How many times have you already had? How, how can you be sure looking forward you'll ever have a chance like this? There's an urgency attached to the gospel. Scripture says he knocks at the door of our hearts, and we must open that door. And I want to invite you to do that right now. If you're ready to trust Christ, to know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven, to live with Jesus in your heart, I'm going to say a prayer. And if you'd like to be included in that prayer, all you have to do is speak it and mean it in your heart. God will hear you. I'm going to ask the church family to pray this with us so that we're all standing with you in this decision you're making. But pray this to God. Make this your prayer out loud after me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. I've done wrong things. I need you. Thank you for dying for me, rising from the dead, saving me by your grace. I receive your life. I give you mine. Head still bowed, eyes still closed, everyone praying. I want to give you the space and time, if you prayed that prayer, to act on it. I'm going to count to three. And when I get to three, if you prayed that prayer, making Jesus your Lord, I want you to raise your hand up in the air, shoot it up in the air. This is a way of nailing it down, crossing a line. You're saying, I made this decision. I'm going to move forward, walking with Jesus, living under the Spirit's control so I can produce that fruit and not have it be just leaves, just profession, just a promise, but true practice in my life. When I get to three, you shoot your hand up. One, two, three. Come on, shoot your hands up. Shoot your hands up. Shoot your hands up. Thank you, Jesus. What an incredible message. Thank you so much for joining us in this teaching from Fresh Life Church. If while you were watching this message, you felt led to make a decision to follow Christ, congratulations. We would love to send you a Bible to help you begin your relationship with Jesus. Please click the Know God tab at freshlife.church or text the word FRESHLIFE to 99000 to receive that. If you've been impacted in any way through what God is doing through Fresh Life Church, we would love to hear from you. Click the Share Your Story tab on our site or email us at story at freshlife.church and share how God is using this work to impact your life. These stories are incredibly encouraging to our staff and our church family. Finally, if you'd like to partner with us and financially support the things that God is doing through this house, you can text the word FRESH to 45777 or you can click the Give tab at freshlife.church. Thank you so much for watching.